0: Father God, in a service like this, we do a lot of things every week over and over and over. We pray and sometimes people are baptized and sometimes, Father, we're confessing our sin. Sometimes we declare our faith in various ways. Always, God, we come to a time of teaching where we ask you to open our eyes and our hearts and our minds and speak to us And Father, you've been doing that in this um, series through the Ten Commandments. And so we would ask that again this morning you would apply your word to our lives and our hearts and our minds in ways that only you can. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Well, once upon a time uh, in a church uh, far away Uh, A church, this church was birthed, and as it was birthed, it did a lot of things that, of course, churches have always done. Uh, It would gather and sing. Uh, It would gather and pray. Uh, They would take an offering, various offerings. Uh, Sacraments would be administered. There would be a time of teaching. And so some of the things that happen today in churches happened in this church when it was birthed. But some other things were happening in this church was very interesting. Um, one of them that was very, very noticeable was sacrificial sharing. This sharing was so pervasive that no one in the church was ever lacking anything, we're told. Uh, everybody had the, the food or the clothing or the shelter that they needed when they needed it. And as a result of the preaching and the teaching, the sharing, all these things, this church just grew and grew and grew. And as it grew, there were many needy people, people with all kinds of needs coming into the church. So many, in fact, that the offerings that they would take were no longer sufficient to meet the needs of all of those people. And so, you know, they asked the question, what what is our church to do? How do we handle this? And the elders called a meeting and people had various ideas some, you know, said, "Well, let's do a bingo fundraiser." Others said, "Let's, you know, let's do a horse wash." They didn't have cars back then, so they would wash horses. And uh, they realized, however, kind of quickly that a lot of money was needed to meet the needs of these folks. And they weren't sure at all that those kinds of things would raise that kind of money. And then suddenly, as they were pondering, "What do we do? How do we address these needs?" A man stood up in their midst and said, "You know what? I have a summer cottage down by the sea." I'm just going to sell it, and I'm going to give the proceeds to the church, and then the church can meet the needs of these new members that are among us, and everybody was, as you could well imagine, just blown away, and uh, they were giving praise, they were giving thanks, they were celebrating what God was doing, and and it was just amazing. And then another man stood up and said, you know what, I've got an empty lot over by the Coliseum. Uh, I'm just going to sell that too, and I'm going to give that to the church. And those resources can be used to meet the needs of people in our church, folks that have those kinds of needs. And so there was more celebrating and, and cheering and giving of thanks. And, and so began a very exciting time in the life of this new church. Every time there were needs in the church that regular giving couldn't meet, well, somebody who had been blessed with certain means gave a gift and gave uh, that gift to the church. And the church used those gifts to bless its members that had various kinds of needs. Now, one day a very curious thing happened. They were gathered for worship And somebody with needs was there, uh, and as usual, somebody volunteered to sell a piece of property and give the proceeds to the church. But when the man that handed the money to the pastor, the pastor started shouting at the man, and everybody who was there in that service kind of, oh, wow, what, what is going on? The pastor asked that man, why have you done this awful thing? You have not lied to men, but to God, the pastor said, and then the man fell down dead. This was a really different worship service, and the whole congregation gasped. The pastor ordered some of the men there to bury that man immediately. And while they were off doing that, the pastor explained the situation: what had what had just happened. And the fact of the matter was, the man had lied. He'd sold property for one price, and then he had claimed to be giving that whole price to the church for the purpose of you know meeting the needs that existed. And um, it would have been fine if he sell the property for whatever price he can get for it. He could keep whatever amount of it he wants to keep. It was his property. It's his money. But what wasn't fine was to lie about it and say, you know, keep some back and say, no, that's, that's really all I got. And here now the church can have it. It was not okay to lie about it. And so the pastor explained this to the congregation, that the man was lying first and foremost to God, but also even the church. And when the pastor had finished, guess who wandered in next? It was the wife of this man. And you can imagine the situation gets really quiet in the church. Uh Uh-oh. What is this going to mean? And the pastor looked at this wife and just asked her the question, point blank, is this the full price of the land that you and your husband sold to give to the poor? Is this the full price? And you can, (laughs) congregation's holding their breath, right? I mean, this is sweaty, palm-pounding heart time. What is she going to say? What's going to happen? They're all thinking, don't lie, don't lie, tell the truth, tell the truth. And the wife looked at the pastor and said very calmly, yes, pastor, that's the full price of the land we sold. And I'm sure the pastor was shaking his head and thinking, why, why, why have you lied? And just at that time, the gravediggers are returning from burying her father, and then we read this in Acts chapter 5, verse 9, Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And she fell down dead as well. And she was buried right next to her father, and from that day forward, as you can well imagine, the rest of the congregation had decided it is not in their best interest to lie to one another or to God, right? And uh, they had a giant worship banner. It was a beautiful, beautiful banner made, and they hung it in their, in their sanctuary, and it just said, You lie, you die. <laughs> now, as I already indicated, that, that's a story, not the banner part, but that's a story out of Acts chapter 5. It's a paraphrase of that story. A, a couple in that church named Ananias and Sapphira. It's a true story. And here's the deal. Most of us have no idea how our lying affects people and things around us, especially God. See, given who God is, you might think of it like this. Have you you ever, you ever seen an accomplished musician, somebody who's really good at playing, let's say, a piano? Have you ever seen them sit down at a piano and they're just playing away at a piano that's badly, badly, badly out of tune? Well, the answer is no, you probably haven't seen that because a, an accomplished pianist is not going to sit down at a piano that's badly, badly out of tune and play. It just, it's, it's too painful. It's too irritating. Or maybe this example will resonate with you. A skilled craftsman goes into a building and (laughs) uh, this building happens to have doors that are improperly hung, right? Walls that are not plumb and trim that is not cut right. And so everywhere the craftsman looks, there's just something there to bother him. And it bothers him a lot. Doesn't even want to be in that building. And the point is, when you understand and appreciate something uh, and how it is supposed to actually sound, or actually look, or what it's supposed to actually be. When you understand excellence, when you understand beauty, or you understand perfection, or you know what truth is, then you struggle with anything that does not measure up. And friends, we have no idea what our telling lies does to our God, because understand, lies are completely foreign to God completely foreign. They are alien to his character. They are vulgar. They are ugly. They are disgusting. They are perversions to God, precisely because part of his very nature is truth. It's truth. You know, Pontius Pilate and others throughout history have asked uh, the same question, you know, what is truth? And when they ask it, they kind of roll their eyes, like, yeah, really, what is truth? We've just been through a, a time period, a, a longer than a year, where you could say, yeah, what is truth? We had the whole nation divided up about mass, no mass. What's the science? The science says this, the science says that. Yeah, what is truth? And we've kind of all lived through that kind of a feeling and that kind of a situation. The idea is who can possibly actually know the truth? And when Pilate said it, he meant about anything. Who can know the truth? And then Jesus, as usual, surprises everybody by saying, you want to know the truth? Well, here's the truth. And he makes a statement that's become famous. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So don't roll your eyes and don't play the part of a scoffer or a skeptic or a cynic when it comes to this thing about truth, because I am the truth, he said. And Jesus later declared, he said, if you abide in my word, in the things I say, if you live in them, walk in them, obey them, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that is a freedom we all need, friends. You see, the truth is who God, who Jesus who the Holy Spirit actually are, that they are the embodiment of truth. Truth is what you and I need desperately in our lives. Truth is what will, in fact, says Jesus, set us free. Free from bondage. And here's here's the deal. We've talked about this before. If there is no God, then there is no really foundational truth. If there is no God, there is no truth. There really isn't. It's your opinion versus my opinion. That's what we're uh, devolved to. If, if there is no God, there is no truth. Um, God and truth are one. The Apostle Paul, when writing to Titus, describes God this way. He describes God as the God who never lies. Think about that. Never, ever, ever lies. Imagine whenever God speaks, it's just truth. The psalmist declares this. All your words are true says the psalmist. God never speaks error. God never speaks deceitfully. God never speaks falsely. God never exaggerates. Uh, The writer of Proverbs says this, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Of the seven, two of them are specifically about lying, but I would submit that all seven of them are actually, all seven of the things that God hates are actually rooted in either believing lies or, or advocating lies you can check it out. It's Proverbs chapter 6. Friends, this is why God gave us the ninth commandment. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Or to shorten it, you shall not lie. In the Old Testament times, giving false testimony against a neighbor was a very serious situation. Two people bearing false testimony could mean a person's life or it could mean their property. In Deuteronomy, we read uh, Deuteronomy 17, on the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Remember Ahab and Jezebel? This is king and queen of the northern kingdom of of Israel. They wanted a, a certain vineyard in Jezreel, the city of Jezreel, that was owned by a guy named Naboth, And Naboth didn't want to sell his vineyard to the king, to the queen. It had been in the family for generations, right? And so Ahab and Jezebel, they hatch a scheme together. And they get two false witnesses to charge Naboth, 1 Kings 21. Naboth has cursed both God and king. And so they took him outside the city and they stoned him to death. Next thing you know, Ahab and Jezebel own Naboth's vineyard there in Jezreel. Bearing false witness, lying about someone or something in a court of law was deadly, serious business, and of course, it still is. This is where the practice came from uh, in our culture. Uh, when a witness goes up on the stand to give testimony, to bear witness, they would place their hand on the Bible once upon a time, and they, they would say, you know, uh, that, so help me God, I'm going to speak the truth. Um, and nothing but the truth. Now, um, bearing false witness in a court of law was and still is serious business. It's something that is expressly forbidden in the ninth commandment, and rightly so, because a person's life can be on the line, a person's property, or both Can be on the line. Now, as we've come to expect with these commandments, each time we've kind of been diving into one and trying to examine it, what we've come to discover is um, that, that the meaning and the application of these commandments is kind of far reaching. It just, it tampers with all kinds of areas and all kinds of things in our lives. This morning, I want to talk about three types of bearing false witness that are kind of common ground for us. One is just straight up lying. Another is distortion, and another is exaggeration. And so we'll dive right into the first one lying. You know, if you pay attention to the news, you know our world is never dull. It's also never good, but it's never dull. It's, it's, it's always interesting. Uh, you know that Hamas has been launching rockets into Israel, and Israel's been responding back. You know that Russia is moving more troops onto the borders of Ukraine. You know that crime in nearly all of our major cities is literally skyrocketing. Uh, just in the month of May, just the month of May, 35 people have been shot and killed in the United States in uh, attempted mass shooting incidents. That's just this month. You ever wonder why such things go on and on and on and on in our world? They never end. Well, the Bible says this. The Bible says that the whole cesspool that pollutes our planet began with a lie. All the evil. All of the sin in our world began with a lie. Satan talking to Adam, talking to Eve, uh, saying uh, lies to them. You see, God had said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. That's what God had said. Satan says to Eve, however, you will not certainly die. He tells her a lie. And then he builds another lie upon that lie. He says, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And Adam and Eve, of course, listen to the lie and they choose to believe the lie. Lying is responsible for, the opening, uh, for opening the floodgates of evil upon our planet and in our lives, which might help to explain why God so detests this business of lying, not only because of who he is, he's the truth, but also because of what happens as a result of the lies that were spoken long ago and believed and are still believed today. Jesus one time called Satan, the evil one, the father of lies. He said this in John 8, he said, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Every time Satan opens his mouth, out comes lies. Lie after lie after lie. Satan is full of deceit. What, uh, what comes out of his mouth is what causes discord and hatred and evil in this world in which we leave, live and us. Evil of all kinds bubbles up out of this cesspool of lies, lies, excuse me. Satan wants you to believe lies about God. He wants you to believe lies about yourself. He wants you to believe lies about your sin, your sins not that bad. It's not that consequential. Satan wants us to believe lies about each other, lies about other people. Lies are one of the basic ingredients of almost every sinful thing we do. And because of this, God hates lying with a passion, a divine, holy passion. I think it would be correct to say that the heart of our God is deeply grieved every time we stoop to speak a lie as well as every time we choose to believe a lie. You know, the truth is this. Lies just pour out of us all the time, all too frequently without us even thinking. I mean, we lie to impress people. Uh, We want people to think we know so-and-so, you know, And, and that will then impress them with who we are because of who we know. We lie to impress people with what we know. We pretend to know things we don't know. And we don't want to go too far with that because then it'll become very apparent that we don't know what we're saying we know. But if we can just say just a little, you know, we give the impression that we know stuff we don't know. We uh, try to impress people with what we paid. How many here have ever told someone that you paid less for something than you actually paid? We've all done that at one point or another, I, I submit. I mean, I haven't, but I'm guessing you have. We lie to impress people with where we've been or where we've gone, what we've seen, so on and so forth. We lie when we apply for a job. Very frequently, people will pad their resume just a little, just to make it a little better, uh, claim credit for stuff they didn't do. We lie about our past accomplishments. Oh, yeah, yeah, I graduated with honors. Yeah, the top of my class. We have a president that recently did that, but let's not think that only that president has done that. I think it's pretty consistent that most presidents. Let's just say all presidents have done that. It's just that some got caught and some didn't. You know, you know. I was the captain of the volleyball team. I was the captain of the basketball team. Uh, I was a cheerleader. I mean, I was, not I'm saying you would say that, but, you know, uh, I was a top salesman for three quarters in a row in our company. I was the president of my graduating class. We lie about accomplishments. We embellish. Uh, We lie to get even, to get revenge from the people we don't like, people we consider to be enemies. We make up stories about them. We lie to make a profit. We make marketplace promises that we know we cannot keep. We make claims about products that we sell that we know that they're not going to meet, they're not going to really match those claims. We offer delivery dates that we have no chance of actually keeping, right? We lie oftentimes just for convenience. Couldn't make the meeting because I wasn't feeling well. Uh, Couldn't meet the deadline because of so many interruptions. Uh, Couldn't turn in the paper on time because my computer crashed. Used to be my dog ate it, but, you know. Couldn't come to your party because I already had plans. Sorry. We lied to escape punishment. I didn't do it. I didn't say it wasn't me. Officer, I had no idea what the speed limit was. I'm actually on my way to the hospital, you know. (laughs) Uh, I'm late because the car wouldn't start. Oh, I'm sorry I'm late, I ran out of gas. Oh, I'm sorry I'm late, I missed the exit. I'm sorry I'm late, I got lost. When the truth was, I just left late. When you stop and think about it, sadly, we lie all the time for all kinds of reasons, and then we justify it by saying that those kinds of lies are just what? Little white lies. We diminish the significance of our lying. What is more, think of the lies we believe. We believe lies all the time, uh, all kinds of lies. We believe, for example, that God really isn't good, doesn't really have my best interests at heart. In fact, he's always telling me to do stuff I don't want to do, and I don't believe it's going to be good for me if I do it. Uh, we believe the lie that obeying him is, is, is going to be the right thing, the best thing for me, or that honoring him with my finances is actually good for me, or that telling the truth would be a, a bad idea right now. God says I shouldn't lie, but if I don't, if I tell the truth, I'm going to be in a heap of trouble, so I'm just going to go ahead and lie. You see, we lie and believe lies all the time. But here's the thing, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, then the Spirit of God comes to indwell us, and something starts to happen to address this problem of lying in us. The Apostle Paul writes this uh, letter to to, uh, the Ephesians. He says uh, in that letter, these words, he says, "...that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus." You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful, untruthful lies, you see, desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we are all members of one body. When we become a follower of Jesus, something internally begins to change in us. We start identifying lies for what they are, and we're supposed to put off the old and put on the new. Putting on the new is very much about being a truth teller to one another. Lying is inconsistent with who we are if we are in Christ Jesus. Lying should no longer be a part of our daily repertoire, right? Being Jesus' disciple is, in fact, all about learning to live in and walk in and believe the truth. Jesus, after all, made that claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Again, if we only knew what lying did to Jesus, it killed him. Our white lies killed him. And there's a sense, I think, in which you could say, and they still do, when he sees us or observes us lying, speaking lies or believing lies, it just kills him because he knows what lying does to us and to each other. Think about uh, lies. Lies destroy our personal credibility. Do you know anybody uh, who, about whom, you know, it's kind of just known or it's just said about them? Yeah, you, you can't really believe a thing they say. They have no credibility. Well, what has caused that? They're lying. You know, lies destroy uh, the integrity of our relationships. Fact of the matter is, your relationships will only be as good uh, as you are at telling truth to that person. When they tell you truth and you tell them truth, relationships get stronger, better. They grow deeper. They're more impactful. But if you have a relationship with someone built on lie after lie after lie or deception after deception, that's not much of a relationship. Lies destroy the integrity of our relationships. They also destroy our ability to love and trust God. When when you believe lies about God, you're not going to trust him. That's why our thinking has to be renewed. That's why our ideas about who God is and the way God acts constantly have to be refined and defined by the word of God, not by feelings or not by what so-and-so says, you see. The evil one, friends, is so pleased each time we tell a lie. You can't imagine. So pleased each time we choose to believe a lie. Because every time we do, we damage relationships. We damage a family. We damage a church. We damage businesses and institutions. We damage even nations. You know that most of the corruption that nations perpetrate on other nations is based on lies. Lies that are believed. Lies that are perpetrated to justify actions that, want to be, that are, are uh, wanted to be taken. Lying is so pervasive and so incredibly destructive. And because that is the case, it is terribly, terribly difficult to stop lying. Learning to lie starts at a very early age. Have you noticed this? No schooling is even necessary. Honey, did you take your sister's toy? Nope. Mm -mm. Did you shove your brother? Nope. Mm -mm. Did you pick up your room? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's done. Did you do your homework? It doesn't matter what age. We just get better and more sophisticated at lying the older we get. Each time we answer with a lie, we are developing patterns in our life, and we do this over a period of many, many years, so breaking those patterns is extremely difficult. Lies are so much a part of our lives, we're just accustomed to dealing with lies every day, all day long, marketing lies. You know, it's been more than a year since movies have come out. Man, have you seen any of the trailers for movies? This is going to be the best year of movies ever. ever ever in the history of well I can't say mankind they weren't always around but you know what you know the point I mean the the movies are gonna be so phenomenal and I'm just thinking yeah you've just been sitting on this for more than a year and now you're just really hyping it. restaurants that are opening up all the food the cuisine cars do you know that if you buy this car you'll look younger you'll be sexier. You will definitely be happier. I mean, we just get used to filtering out the lies of marketing. Cleaning products. You use this cleaning product, your house will be spick and span, clean as can be. How about beauty products? I don't even go there, the lies that are told around uh, beauty products or certain clothes that you wear. Social greetings. I mean, we, we... Social greetings is just a way of being polite to each other, but we lie in them all the time. We do it without even thinking. How you doing? I'm doing great. Life is great. Well, is it? Isn't it? I mean, we don't even think about it. We just speak it. Parenting lies. Boy, parenting lies. How's your son doing? How's your daughter doing? Oh, uh, they're doing great. My son is uh, just really excelling in college right now. When the truth is, he's about to, you know, fail, flunk out, what have you. It's just that parents don't want to be always truthful about how their children are doing, whether they're little or whether they're older. And when somebody tells you that your little Johnny just punched little Susie, it's like, oh, that couldn't be, that has to be a lie. You see, political lies, whoa, during campaign seasons, we just have learned to filter that out. I mean, it goes in one ear and out the other for good reason because so many things are being said that are such lies. Media lies, believe me, We've learned to discard a lot of what we hear just because we know they're lies. And we do this almost without thinking. So understandably, to break out of the cycle of lies takes an all-out effort. In fact, I would say all the effort that you can give it will not let you succeed at breaking the cycle of lies in your life or mine. You need the supernatural power and working of God's word and the Holy Spirit to break out of the cycle of lies. And I'll tell you the best thing you can do when the Holy Spirit convicts you that you've just told a lie. And here's the thing. If you are a follower of Jesus, I know that happens in your life. It happens in my life. I'll say something. It was a lie. And I'm immediately convicted thinking, oh, gosh. why?" Sometimes I'm convicted thinking, why did I do that? Why did I tell that lie? That is so, so stupid. And the best thing to break you out of that cycle, I've done this. It's really embarrassing, is to just go back to that person and say, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, I just told you a lie, what, what I said was not really the truth, and you do that a dozen or so times, it will help you break the cycle of lying in your life. And I, along these lines, a word to parents parents, you must confront lies first in your own life. You've got to set a pattern in dealing with your children in your families where when you lie, you repent, you confess. You create a context where your children understand why you don't want to lie and why you're going to deal with lies the way you should for what they are. They are sin. Absolutely important that you develop those kinds of patterns because the contrary patterns are being formed in the lives of your children without you even teaching them to lie. But if they're watching you lie, oh, wow, what a school that is. They'll just get really good at it from watching you. You've got to explain to them that God, their Heavenly Father, does not lie. Not ever, never, never does He lie. And Jesus, their Savior, is the truth. And so we want to be more like Jesus. And that means we stop lying. We seek forgiveness when we do. And we build into our lives healthy patterns of confessing, repenting, and being forgiven. Let's model in our families how we should process lies. And let's take lying seriously not just in our children's lives, but in ours, and set the pattern. i want to move to a second form of falsehood, and that's distortion. This goes in many different directions. So I I could talk the rest of the day on this one, on distortions, but I'm going to have to limit myself here. Um, This is just a more subtle form of lying, this thing of distortion. Uh, This is all about half-truths, selective facts, innuendo, misquotes, that kind of thing. It's exactly what Satan did with Eve in the garden. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? It's just an illustration, friends, of how deadly distortion can be, especially when it involves the word of God, what God said or what God didn't say. The Apostle Paul warned the church in Galatia with these words. He said, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ, the message that we've delivered to you about Jesus. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, then let them be under God's curse. What Paul is saying is, if that happens, let them be damned. That's what he's saying. And yet that goes on every day all around us in this sinful fallen world. God's word is distorted. Sometimes very deliberately. uh, There are some very deliberate distortions that are very popular today. There's, um, There's the Mormon church. There's Jehovah's Witness uh, oftentimes, very nice people, well-meaning people, the kind of people you want to have as, as neighbors are a part of these movements. But understand this, these movements together deceive about 24 million people around our planet. And these are not Christian denominations, friends. These are aberrant cults, false representations of Christianity, because they mix truth with half-truth and distortion. And lies, lies about the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or lies about Jesus, His uniqueness, uh, being the one and only Son of God, or Jesus' divinity. These kinds of things are always called into question by, by cults. Or lies about God's Word. Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, take verses out of the Bible and change ones, uh, some of the verses in the Bible to suit their own teachings and beliefs. And as all of you, I'm sure, know, Mormons add an entire book to the Bible, the Book of Mormon. Uh, Not so long ago, we studied together the book of Revelation, and we saw that the apostle John ends his book, and as it turns out, ends really all of Scripture with these words in Revelation. He says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life. That means eternal life. They're not going to have eternal life. And he says, and in the holy city, the holy city, if you have read and understand the book of Revelation, that's actually the church. So what he's saying is, is you will be, eternal life will be taken from you and so will your membership, your inclusion in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, when you add or subtract from God's word, you are lying by distortion. And pretty soon, God's word is no longer God's word when it's distorted enough. Even Christian teachers are guilty of distortions. In the past, uh, some Christian teachers have advocated racism, uh, advocated slavery, advocated segregation. Uh, Some religious teachers have predicted dates for the return of Jesus. So far, they've all been wrong. Let me make a prediction. They always will be, okay? They always will be. Some have advocated terrible, terrible misunderstandings of church authority, and churches have become... Very unhealthy in terms of its application of authority in people's lives. Some have advocated very unhealthy, unbiblical uh, teaching around the family, how a husband relates to a wife and a wife to a husband and so on. Some advocate really harsh parenting techniques or approaches. And when those kinds of things happen, those are actually distortions. They do serious damage. They twist the teachings of the Bible and take you places the Bible wouldn't take you. And this is why. Hear me now. This is why all of you have a responsibility to study and to know God's word for yourselves. So that it can correct your thinking where your thinking is wrong. And so that it can help you evaluate teaching like you're hearing this morning and evaluate it. Is it any good? Is it biblical? Is it right? Is it true? You need to be able to evaluate those kinds of things and also so you can bless others because to the degree that you know God's word, you will then in appropriate ways and at appropriate times be able to share that with each other and with others. You see, here's a good rule of thumb. Teaching that sounds extreme or hateful or harsh probably is and is probably wrong. Teaching that is excessively black and white and divisive You want to be careful with that teaching that sounds out of step with traditional Orthodox Christian doctrine. What is traditional Orthodox Christian doctrine? Well, that's doctrine that has been hammered out by churches over the past couple of thousand years. And churches, whether they're Presbyterian, Lutheran, Reformed, Baptist, doesn't matter, you know, run essentially on a a main set of tracks, and we agree on most things. And that would be orthodox Christian doctrine, orthodox Christian teaching. And with teaching that's not orthodox or is therefore unorthodox, you need to be careful, be cautious, be studious, and beware don't just swallow it. Now, obviously, there are matters where Christians disagree. In fact, they always have. Um, These are legitimate places for debate and discussion. This is fine. Who do we baptize would be one of those questions. How do we take communion? When do we take communion? What do the end times look like? You know, when you hear people predicting dates, that should be suspicious to you. Uh, spiritual gifts. Are all the spiritual gifts being given today? uh, Are there gifts of healing and so on? You know that Christians debate these kinds of things in healthy ways, but they do so with their Bibles open. What does the Bible say about this? These are good debates. Roles of men and women in the church, marriage relationships. How does a husband relate to the wife, the wife to the husband and so on? And then what does parenting look like? Good. Let's open up our Bibles. Let's have good healthy debate. Let's, Let's dive in, dig in. Let's study together so that we get clear as clear as we can. And if at the end Of the day, we disagree a little, that's okay. But these are all things we must study, we must discuss, we must debate, all things that have a long history of debate in the church. But when Christians get their personal opinions published or popularized, and they are not well researched, they're not biblically well founded, In other words, there's lots of creative ideas or creative thinking. Watch out. Watch out. What that usually means is that Scripture has been stuffed into a mold, or let's say into a box, and anything that doesn't fit gets lopped off or ignored. And that quickly leads to imbalance and distortion of the Word of God, even to the creation of new little cults or new little religions not Christianity. And the point is, all of us must at all times be on our guard against distorting the Word of God, distorting truth, truth of any kind. That means, you know, uh, spouses, don't distort what your spouse says. You know, wives, husbands, husbands, wives, don't, don't distort. Listen carefully. What are they actually saying? What do they really mean? That's hard work, isn't it? Uh, don't distort what your boss is saying. Don't distort what the media says. As I alluded to earlier, we've just come through a year where, wow, media, well, which media? What media do you watch or listen to? Um, is it balanced? Is it fair? That sounds like a Fox commercial right there. Doesn't it is. I don't, I'm not, i not i am not saying that. I'm just saying, you know, uh, if, if you only listen to one, if that's the only thing you do, well, the odds are reasonably good that you might not be getting the whole picture. Let's not distort what people say. Let's not find an enemy and just spin it in our favor, you see. This is work. This is hard to not distort. Um, What a teacher or a preacher or a politician says, don't distort it. Listen to it. Weigh it carefully. Is it true? Is it accurate or is it not? What God says. Let's not distort what God says. Distortion is just another insidious form of lying. It's another tool of the evil one. It's one he loves because it gets people at odds with each other. And it gets us misrepresenting each other. And it gets us missing each other by a mile. And all of that is forbidden in the ninth commandment. Now one more thing, just quickly. A final observation. The ninth commandment in forbidding lying is in effect also forbidding things like exaggeration. Um, exaggeration comes in many forms slander gossip boasting complaining kind of have its roots in exaggeration I'm going to exaggerate your bad and in so doing I'm slandering you right when I exaggerate my importance or my credentials or my achievements I'm lying When I exaggerate your deficiencies or your mistakes or your lack of contribution or when I share your deficiencies or your mistakes with others when I don't really need to, well, then what I'm doing is I'm gossiping and I'm using exaggeration to accomplish, to manipulate, to get someone to come along with me and believe what I believe. Exaggeration causes lots and lots and lots of problems all over our society. Starts right at home with marriages. Let me ask you, how do you handle it when your spouse says, you never, or you always, you know, fill in the blank. These kinds of statements can immediately polarize our conversation so badly that meaningful conversation ceases altogether. Never and always are forms of exaggeration. They are rarely, if ever, accurate statements, and they are therefore unhelpful. It's a real problem for Christians. Lots of exaggeration in Christian circles. You know, uh, it's Aaron's job to uh, kind of look at the music that we sing and uh, to, by definition, rule out exaggeration. Because a lot of Christian music is just saturated with exaggeration like we'll be singing about the bliss that we have in Jesus or or the way that the power of the Holy Spirit just helps me always conquer and overcome difficulty or, you know, things that the peace, the amount and level of peace that we live with as Christians. So uh, the love that we have for Jesus, I, I have been in situations where I've been singing a chorus before and I'm thinking to myself, wow, because it'll be me singing about my love for Jesus. And I'm like, wow, yeah, I, that's, I probably ought to be thinking that, but that's not what I'm thinking. And we just need to be careful of how we exaggerate in our circles, worship being one of them. Lots of exaggeration these days in churches as pastors talk to pastors about the importance of their online viewers. You hear churches talk about how they are just conquering the world for Jesus because of their online viewers. Friends, I'll be honest with you. I don't care on a Sunday morning if we have six online viewers or 6,000. It doesn't matter. Uh, Viewing our services online are great if you're checking out the church for the first time uh, or if you, for some reason, can't join us here, uh, you're away traveling or you're sick or you've got COVID, whatever the situation is, so you tune in. That's wonderful. All for that. That's great. But let's be clear. The Old Testament Church and the New Testament church always has, and I'm pretty sure always will be, built on the assumption of gathering together. We gather together for worship because in-person gathering is actually mandated by God. And why is it mandated? Well, because I think it's the only thing that actually works, uh, that actually connects us with God and with each other, other people who follow him, in ways that we're supposed to be connected. You know, we have the Sabbath day, now we have the Lord's day, both days where God has mandated that Christians gather together for the purpose of doing the things that connect us to him and to each other. The writer of Hebrews capsulizes this, says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That's how we interact with each other, love and good deeds. How do we spur each other on to do those things? Well, he says, uh, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We gather for a good reason. We gather to connect. Connect with God, connect with each other. We are the body of Christ. Paul the Apostle wrote to the church in Rome and said, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. We're all different. We all have different gifts. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. When we gather, we put that truth on display. Just look around. We're different. We're not the same. We even think differently, we act differently, we like different things. And yet when we come together like this, we are the body of Christ. And what do you observe when we come together? Well, different ones are serving. Different ones are finding ways to minister to other parts of the body. There are people downstairs right now ministering to their children. There were people out there this morning ministering to some of you with a cup of coffee. There were people at the front door greeting you, just saying, Welcome, we're glad to have you. It's good that you're here. And what we demonstrate, what we put on display when we're doing all those kinds of things and more is it's sort of the hand serving the mouth, the foot serving, you know, the general body, moving it along, the ear serving the eye. And consequently, there, there really is no substitute for personal gathered worship. There just isn't. I mean, watching a worship service online at home in your jammies is not going to church. It's not gathering with the body of Christ. We need, we want you here. Now, you happen to be here. Nobody here is in their jammies. So I'm preaching to the choir right now. But we have 6,000 people right now viewing from home, you know, (laughs) online. And to them, I'm preaching, right? You know, when we worship and praise and confess our sin and we give and we listen to teaching and we respond together as a body, what we are doing then is we are spurring one another on to love and good deeds. That's what we're doing. So if you're saying, hey, I'm at home, I'm in my jammies, that's just as good as going to church, maybe even better because the coffee's better at home, I don't know what you think. Well, I would say you're exaggerating. And I would say that's a lie. And, And I would say churches who claim that they are reaching the world just because they have hundreds or thousands of online viewers, they're exaggerating. They're making much to do about nothing. Just like when churches exaggerate their attendance or their financial needs or their effectiveness in ministry or their personal importance or you know, some aspect of what they do. They're lying and they should stop. Exaggeration is just another form of lying. And so if you find yourself struggling with exaggeration, here's how you stop it. You practice the same principle that we talked about when we talked about lying a moment ago. You just own it. I'm doing it. I'm exaggerating. I need to admit it. I need to embrace it. And I need to stop it. And the way I stop it is I confess it to God. And I also confess it to you when I've exaggerated to you. I have to be committed to that. That will help me break a pattern in my life of not speaking the truth. You see, friends, God has given us the ninth commandment to keep us honest with each other. God has given us the ninth commandment to help our relationships flourish. They can only flourish based on truth, only truth spoken in love. God has given us the ninth commandment to remind us of the importance of truth in our lives. And so as a church, we must walk in the truth personally, individually. And we must speak the truth to one another in love and share the truth of Christ with each other and with others outside these walls. And we must demonstrate the truth of who God is by how we love our neighbor, by how we love each other. This is the only way to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. It's on the basis of truth. Studying it, internalizing it, growing in it, challenging each other on the basis of truth. Amen? Yep, amen. Okay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these commandments. They are indeed challenging. They're just far-reaching. There are just lots of ways, God, that we break these commandments that much of the time we don't even think about. Uh, And, Father, we just confess to you right now how much we need you to make us lovers of truth, lovers of your word, uh, speakers of truth to each other. God, we want our friendships to be honoring and glorifying to you. We want them to go deeper. And yet, God, sometimes we don't want to pay the price to have that happen. And the price would be that we really do find out how best to speak truth to each other. So, God, let us be a church. Let us be individuals who embody uh, and have a passion for truth. And Jesus, of course, you are the truth, so may we follow you closely. And thank you for this time together and this time of reflection. Uh, We ask and we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.